I want you to grab the message notes, the art of living well. After Easter, we started this series in the book of Proverbs, and uh, now I want to dip back into Proverbs as we wrap up for a couple of weeks, because there are three major themes that we didn't get to yet. For example, today, let's talk about how to be wise about sex. Yes, that got your attention. A lot of nervous laughter there, right? Uh, sex always gets attention. Um, when I was in high school, uh, when I was a senior over at Branham High in San Jose, I ran for student body president. And all three candidates for student body president had to give little speeches. And the, the speeches happened in the cafeteria during lunch. And so you can imagine how riveted everybody eating lunch was to the student body president candidates. No, nobody was listening. There were food fights. It was just chaos. And I was number three in the list of people who had to give speeches. And so number one got up there, number two got up there, and you know they're going, and if elected, I hope to work more closely with the trustees. And nobody is listening. So I thought, man, i got to do something so that people pay attention. And so I thought, what is... What kind of gets the attention of high school students? I'm thinking about this as a 17-year-old myself. So I get up to the microphone, and here's my speech. I said three words, sex and violence. And there was quiet in the entire cafeteria. <laughs> Literally, people were like mid-food fight, just stopping like that. What did he just say? And I, I paused, and I said, now that I got your attention, my name's Renee. Vote for me. Thanks a lot. I sat down. I won the election that semester, so, <laughs> true story. Sex always gets your attention, but sex not only gets your attention, sex can make you feel a little bit awkward to, to talk about it. Even to say the word can feel a little bit awkward. My wife, Lori, had a great aunt, Aunt Hazel, when she grew up in Missouri, and Aunt Hazel was a very kind of rigorous, you know, Puritan righteous, religious woman, but Aunt Hazel literally thought it was vulgar or, or inappropriate to actually say the word sex. But once in a while, that does come up in conversation. And so Aunt Hazel's solution was she would say part of the word. Aunt Hazel only said sec. Because apparently to say that would just be too awkward and vulgar. That would be awkward. So she would say things like, you young people are always thinking about sex. Like, and you know what I'm talking about. And that's, that was her solution to the problem. But even if it kind of gets your attention and even if it feels a little bit awkward, you, you have to talk about sex when you talk about the book of Proverbs because it's all over the book of Proverbs. Uh, to kind of give you some context, the book of Proverbs was written to young men about how to be wise in their lives. And so when you're talking to young men, you've, you've got to talk about the subject of sex. Of the first nine chapters of Proverbs, five deal with sex and sexuality and sexual temptation. It's in the rest of the book of Proverbs from time to time as well. And I want to talk about the context because in the book of Proverbs, sexual temptation is often referred to as of the female variety. But that doesn't mean that's the only place sexual temptation comes from. It was written to young men. That's the historical context, the literary context, but it doesn't take much imagination to kind of turn it around and see how it applies to women as well. So the book of Proverbs talks a lot about this, and we need to talk, need to talk a lot about this uh, if we're doing the book of Proverbs. Now, I want to say up front, some of you are going to yourself, why 
did I choose this weekend to invite grandma to come to church with me? I know it can be a little bit... But listen, probably at some point in this message, I am going to say things that maybe you feel a little bit uncomfortable with, whether you have grandma sitting next to you or not. And there are times in this message when I'll say things that probably you don't even maybe agree with, or you're not certain if you agree with them. Well, hang on, because I want to make sure you get the whole message, the, the kind of the, the, the full picture of what the book of Proverbs says about sex. And I may say some things early on in the message that you really do agree with, and you're going, right on, preach on. Well, hold on, because I might get to some places that I hope I get to some places that are going to be challenging for you as well. But this is important because if you're going to be a wise person, you need to understand the power of sexuality in at least three ways. Here's three ways the book of Proverbs talks about this. Wise people understand three things about sexuality. And again, today I'm deeply indebted to Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, for his excellent thoughts on this subject. Three things. The first one is this. As humans, we tend to actually undervalue sex. You say undervalue in a culture that seems obsessed with sex? Well, look at how highly the Bible values it. Uh, it might surprise you. Sex is described in the Bible in terms so erotic and so explicit that it actually really does earn the PG-13 rating of this sermon here today. And I'll show you what I mean. Look at Proverbs 5, verses 15 through 20. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Now, stop right there for a second, because the cistern and the well in Hebrew poetry is an image for female sexuality, because you have to go into the cistern. You have to go down into the well to get the water. This is female sexuality. On the other hand, Next couple of verses, guess what they're about? Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. Next verse, may your fountain be blessed. Now again, the fountain, the spring, the stream, these are pretty graphic images of male sexuality. So you have the well, and you have the fountain. Everybody got that? Are we clear on what we're talking about here? If you don't get this, ask your parents on the way home from church today. And if you're over 20, email mark at tlc.org. But look at this. This verse is a request for divine blessing on the male fountain. Have you ever asked God to bless your fountain? <laughs> Have you ever asked God to bless your well? And yet that's what this verse talks about because the Bible isn't shy about this. And the rest of the verse, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. You might have noticed this whole passage, like every passage uh, in Proverbs about this subject, is basically saying casual sex is out. Don't let your streams flow into the streets. Sex with people outside marriage is out. And then you get to the next verse, and again, you see how erotic 
sex within marriage is described. Verse 19, a loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts, yes, this is in the Bible, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. And the word intoxicated there literally means to stagger as when drunk. This verse is saying, may your sex with your wife be so good, it kind of makes you stagger. It makes you feel drunk. And what I'm trying to get at is this. I think you'll agree with me when I say that the Bible is more erotic than many people imagine. And that's a fill-in on your notes. Probably the only time the word erotic is going to be a fill-in on your sermon notes. So go ahead and write it in here. But I love this because what you have here in these verses is a combination of attitudes that you couldn't think could be combined. You really have a combination of what you might call liberal attitudes and conservative attitudes all rolled into one. On the, on the one hand, this is an amazingly erotic, positive view of sexuality. This is total rejoicing in sexual pleasure. And there isn't the tiniest little bit of prudishness about it at all. This is very explicit. And there's a joy about it. There's an unselfconscious celebration of sex. On the other hand, not only is it a high view of sexuality, it's also a very high view of marriage. This is the loftiest view possible of human sexuality and the loftiest view possible of marriage. And that's a combination you just don't see a lot in our culture's media, right? Hot sex in marriage. And this theme is consistent all throughout Proverbs. Look at Proverbs 30, verses 19 and 20. I love this. The writer says, there are three things that are too amazing for me. Four that, that, that I don't understand. And again, this is a Hebrew literary device. This was used in Hebrew poetry that the author says, there are three things. No, no, wait. Oh, there's, there's four things that just blow my mind. They're so beautiful. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. And these are all sensual images. These are all amazing and beautiful and captivating things. Sex is likened to soaring, to sailing, to propulsion, to flying. And then the very next verse is jarring. And it's meant to be jarring. It's a literary device. It's jarring in terms of image because sex isn't likened to soaring or sailing but to sloppiness. Verse 21 of Proverbs 30, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. Kind of like, burp. I've done nothing wrong. And so not only do you have a contrast in image, but you have a contrast in attitude. There's this, well, what, what, what's your problem? Here in this verse, sex is routine. This person's attitude, well, sex is just an appetite, just an appetite. I get hungry, I eat. 
I get horny, I have sex. That's all it is, fulfilling an appetite. What's the big deal? There's no wonder, there's no beauty, there's no mystery, there's no joy. And verses like this mean don't make sex primarily about your appetite. Because then you're just turning it into groceries. It's just a way to satisfy your hunger. See, sociologists have a term really for this. It's a term called commodification. And there's a you know, $2 word, but, but it's a great word to know, commodification. And what they mean by this is the process by which things that used to be free, things that used to just be available to everybody that, that were based on relationship become commodified. They become products meant to be purchased in the marketplace. And, and so sociologists are saying that in our society, in our market-driven culture, everything's becoming commodified. Like, you know, water. Water used to be, you know, considered available freely to all, and now it's commodified. It's, you go to the store, and there's all kinds of different bottled water you buy. Water's become commodified. But sociologists say it goes much deeper than that. In our society, almost everything's becoming commodified. Friendships are becoming commodified. You kind of shop for your friends. They're, they're not really friends for life. They're based on what have you done for me lately. And you shop for churches, and you shop for sex. Sex is becoming commodified. And they're warning that that's what's happening in our culture. It's no longer about commitment. It's about meeting your appetite. And are you willing to pay the price that's being asked to meet that appetite? That's the adulterous woman here. Sex is just groceries. And one problem with this is it'll become routine and it'll become boring and all the mystery will go away. So I need to ask myself, is my sexuality commitment-driven or consumer-driven? Is it commitment-driven? It's about giving fully of myself. Or is it consumer-driven? Basically, I'm buying it like I buy a, a movie rental or something. So what's Proverbs saying in all of these verses in the first point? about sex. Don't let your springs overflow in the streets. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Don't be like the adulterous woman. The most pointed application here is this. And you probably knew this was on the way in a message about sex. The Bible says very consistently, be married to have sex. Now, this does not mean other people have a right to judge you. This does not mean you're not welcome here at church. I want everybody to be here at church learning about Jesus. But what this does mean is you need to be committed fully with your whole life for life to really enjoy sex as the way God meant it to be. Because when you don't do that, you begin to commodify it. At some level, it begins to be just about fulfilling an appetite for a price you have negotiated and not about unconditional commitment anymore. Now, you say, wait a minute, Renee. Don't you realize you live in Santa Cruz? Yes. Don't you live, you're preaching in Santa Cruz? Yes. Don't you realize it's 2013, not 1950? Yes. And therefore, I know somebody here right now is offended by what I just said. And I don't have anybody particular in mind. I, I really don't. But I know somebody here is saying, I'm offended right now because I am committed. And I do love 
the person I am involved with sexually right now outside of marriage. Well, I'm not saying that you don't love that person. But I am saying, listen carefully, if you are retaining the right to get out of that relationship, if the cost for the product gets too high for you, then at some level it's a commodity and it's not a commitment. It's a consumer relationship to some degree. And the Bible says you're not getting it. Get yourself in a fully committed relationship. Why? So that you can soar. So first of all, the Bible says we tend to undervalue sex, actually, by forgetting its beauty and mystery and making it into a product for our appetite. But second, and this takes some real talent, but at the same time that we undervalue sex, we tend to overvalue skin. And by that, I mean we tend to overvalue physical appearance, externals, sexiness, Uh, And I want to illustrate this by showing the lengths to which our society goes to improve the beauty of even people who are already beautiful but apparently are no longer beautiful enough because the bar in our culture keeps going up and up and up. Look at some of these before and after pictures. Uh, First, let me show Faith Hill. She's gorgeous, right? But look at the original photo shoot and then look at how it showed up on the cover of Red Book magazine. Her arm has been made thinner. The little roll of fat in the back has been airbrushed away. Her back has been made flatter. Her blemishes, her wrinkles in her face have been taken away because apparently this beautiful woman was not pretty enough the way God already made her. And I love the fact that on the cover of Redwood Magazine, it says, look and feel your hottest. But you see the the subtitle, Red Book, love your life. They don't want you to love your life. They don't want you, they want you to hate the way you look so that you'll buy their advertisers' products, probably. And then next, look at Angelina Jolie, already a beautiful woman, but there's the original photo shoot, and here's the way it appears after being photoshopped in the magazine. Uh, Her blemish is taken away, and you'll notice her eye there on the left is a little bit too low. It's not quite even with her right eye, so they have to lift it up just a little bit. It's crazy, but they have to take this already beautiful woman and try to make her more beautiful. And then finally, not just women, but here's George Clooney, you know? Here's the way he looks in real life, and here's the way they Photoshop it out, all of his wrinkles and stuff being removed. What I really don't understand is that they are removing his beautiful gray hair, his best feature. That is a big mistake, but... My point is, in our culture, we're almost addicted to an obsession with physical beauty beyond any reasonable standards, and Proverbs warns against this. Proverbs 11.22, great verse. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Now, this is kind of disgusting, right? And it's supposed to be disgusting because the idea is this. You see a beautiful ring... And you just want to reach out and grab it and own that ring and make it a part of your life. It's so beautiful that it entrances you. But if it's attached to a pig that rolls around in the dirt and the muck and the mud and eats slop, and if you pull that ring to yourself and you didn't notice the pig, suddenly you've got a real mess on your hands, right? Now you say, what kind of an idiot would do that? Well... All men here raise their hands. No, this is, uh, 
This is saying that if you look at somebody's physical attractiveness on the surface, somebody who's all striking and shapely and sleek and sexy and just smoking hot, and they're like a gold ring, and you grab the ring, but if you don't know if that person is shallow or foolish or internally is just a mess, you're just as much of a fool because it's the inside that counts, not the outside, because it's that person's character not their looks, that's going to determine what their life ends up being like and what everybody around him or her is going to have as an, as, as an experience. You're just as foolish if you go for a beautiful person and don't see their bad character as somebody who grabs a gold ring and doesn't notice that there's a hog attached to it. Now, this is not a slam of beautiful women. There are wonderful, godly, beautiful women. Frankly, these verses directed to men are a slam of men. This is a slam of the habitual tendency of men to objectify women by evaluating them almost strictly on their looks. And this is saying that is destructive foolishness that has real consequences. In fact, one result for women of this tendency for men to look only at skin, at external beauty, is shattered self-esteem. And this is getting really bad in our society. Look at these stats. Eating disorders for women are three to five times higher in industrialized nations than in poor countries. So in other words, here in countries where we have plenty to eat, eating disorders are three to five times higher than in countries where people are actually starving. Now, keep that stat in mind when I show you the next one. Eating disorders are twice as high among college-educated women who probably tend to be less poor and actually have more to eat, but they're higher among college-educated women than other women. Here's what I think stats like this mean. The closer you get to the center of our Western culture, industrialized nations, college education, the more you are bombarded by our Western culture's message that you are fat and you are ugly no matter who you are and no matter how much you've achieved. And women really suffer. On the other hand, this emphasis on external beauty also has results for men. And one effect of this addiction to skin, to external beauty only, is, of course, pornography. Now, I realize that it is very difficult for a pastor to talk about porn without sounding like a pastor lecturing and scolding, and who wants to listen to a pastor? So don't. Don't listen to me. Let me quote a couple of, like, super hipster secular magazines. I'll start with New York Magazine, which is totally not a religious magazine. I mean, it's it's liberated. A few years ago, it was all about how the sexual revolution is awesome. Well, they have run six or seven articles in the last couple of years about how bad porn is for you. And just one example, I put the URL for this article in your notes. The porn myth, subtitle, in the end, porn doesn't wet men's appetites. It turns them off to the real thing. And it quotes man after man saying, my porn addiction is actually ruining my life. There's a great quote in this article. The relationship between the multi-billion dollar porn industry and sexual appetite has become like the relationship between processed foods, supersized portions, and obesity. It always takes more junk to fill you up. Great article if you read the whole thing. Another article, this time in Slate magazine, again, definitely not 
your typical Christian voice here. The article is called Sex is Cheap, and I put the URL for this in your notes too. This is by two authors who just wrote a scholarly report called Premarital Sex in America. Now, I want to emphasize these are not pastors. These are public university-funded researchers. Their report is premarital sex in America, and their conclusion at the end is they are extremely alarmed by it. They're like, not for it. But they have some interesting arguments. Listen to this. They say that young men in America, as a group, are failing. Failing. And here's just some of their stats. Earnings for 25 to 34-year-old men have fallen 20% since 1971. College enrollment for men has plummeted. Today, only 43% of new college students are male. That's great for women, but what's happening to the guys? Why are their earnings going down? Their, their, their unemployment is going up. Their college enrollment is dropping and so on. Well, these researchers blame a lot of it on pornography. And here's the reasoning. Follow this. If men have to woo women, if they have to win the hearts of women to have sex, then men will have good jobs. They will get good degrees. They will have good manners, partly in order to win wives and satisfy that drive. You know, they, they want to have nice plumage so they will be chosen as a mate. But... If men can satisfy their sexual urges with a click of the mouse, that drive for real women is drastically decreased, and the authors say, consequently, men are less motivated to clean up, and they succeed less, and they have less drive, and they say, consequently, there is astounding pressure on young women to have premarital sex just to have any kind of hope of any kind of relationship with a guy. It creates the hookup culture. And again, these authors say, and again, this is not, this is not you know, fundamentalism today. This is Slate magazine. And they say this is radically changing our society in unpredictable and unforeseen ways for the worse. But there's a second way in which this addiction to physical beauty is hurting men and women, really, and it's this dating standards. Dating standards, the way in which men determine who they're going to date or who they're going to mate. Honestly, like 80% of women, most men don't even think about. They don't even look at them because they're not pretty enough. Now, when they get to the 20% that they think maybe are pretty enough, then maybe they might skip over somebody who they think is shallow Oh, I don't like her. Why not? Well, she's pretty, but she's shallow. Oh, she's shallow. I see. <laughs> and this is such a problem because there are so many wonderful single women who would be wonderful wives and mates and, frankly, would be wonderful sexual partners but they're not even considered, passed right over, because they don't quite meet the beauty standard. And this is creating isolation and loneliness and bitterness and antagonism between men and women in just alarming ways. Okay, now maybe you're saying, all right, 
you're a pastor, so I guess it's part of your job to alarm me. Well, I'm, I'm alarmed, okay? So here's what I'm motivated to do. I, I'm, I'm going to leave this, and, and I'm not going to give in to our culture. I'm not going to be a shallow person. I will no longer look just at appearance. I'm not going to obsess on beauty. I'm not going to obsess on my own beauty or somebody else's. I'm going to change. Well, that's awesome. How? I'm going to try. I'm going to leave here, and I'm going to try harder. Well, you are never going to overcome your obsession that way. You're never going to overcome an obsession with overvaluing physical beauty and sexual attractiveness by trying harder. You need a power that is greater than your willpower. It's not just going to happen by trying hard. So where do you get that power? Well, I'll tell you where to get that power. You get it by finding true beauty. You get it by finding the beauty of real love. And specifically, the source of all this is we need to value the love of our Savior. We need to value the love of our Savior. Check this out. The book of Proverbs repeatedly personifies sexual temptation as an immoral woman because it's addressed to young men, remember. But it says, I saw a woman calling. This is from Proverbs 7. I saw a woman calling. I have perfumed my bed. Come, let us drink deeply of love until morning. Let us enjoy ourselves with love. My husband's not at home. Her house is a highway to the grave. But then what does the author say? So try real hard not to do it with her. Is that what he says? No. He says there is also another beautiful woman also calling out to you. Does not, this is in verse, uh, Proverbs chapter 8, does not wisdom call out? Wisdom has built her house. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants, and she calls, Come and eat the food and drink the wine that I have mixed. I love this because it doesn't say, Okay, there's a beautiful seductress trying to woo you over here, so instead... Go over to those sour-faced Puritans over there who are going to tell you, don't have sec. You know, is that your option, really? You know, your options are you can party with a hooker or you can pick at the porn shop with the religious weirdos. Are those your choices? No, it says there's an even more beautiful woman wooing you. There's a better love inviting you over. It's personifying wisdom as a person in love with you. But as we asked at the beginning of this series, what if this isn't just a literary device? What if it is possible to fall in love with wisdom incarnate? Well, of course it is. And that's the whole point of the gospel. That's why God the Father became incarnate into the world, because the message of the gospel is not try harder to be good. It's that God so loved the world that he sent his son. And what about his son? I want you to think of this for a second. Think about what Jesus taught about sex for a minute. Most of the time he didn't talk about it. Most of the time he was criticizing religious people, religious leaders, but on a few occasions, he was asked about sex and marriage. 
in his would you characterize his teaching about sex and marriage as strict? Yeah, it was pretty strict. Stricter even than the Pharisees' teaching. He said, no adultery, and not just no adultery, no lust, and no divorce ever. It's pretty strict. So strict his disciples were like, wow, that's intense, Jesus. And yet who are his followers? Adulterers? Divorced people? Lusters? That's interesting. The very people you'd think would be alienated by his teaching, they're magnetically drawn to him. Think about the woman at the well. Think of the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman. This is a great Rembrandt sketch of that story. But do you know that story? This woman had been married and divorced five times. And the woman she was living with when she meets Jesus, she's not married to. And Jesus makes it clear he knows that. But then does he scold her for that? Does he tell her, do you try harder to not do that? No. Why? Because he knows that's not the solution for her problem. The solution is the living water. The solution is she needs to know him and be in a relationship with him as her savior. And she gets it, and she turns into the first evangelist ever. And I was thinking about this. If our church is going to look like the ministry of Jesus, then it's got to look like that. It's got to be absolutely biblical when it comes to teaching sexual ethics like Jesus was. And at the same time, it's got to be totally welcoming to the very people that you'd think might be alienated by those teachings. In other words, Jesus, you might say Jesus was conservative in his morality and liberal in his welcome. He was strict in his teaching and unconditional in his love. And if our church is going to look like the ministry of Jesus, then it's going to look like that. Because we're all sinners. We're all prodigals. And what we need is not primarily to be more moral. What we need is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then he changes us from the inside out. Look, I want you to see something as I close. Let me leave Proverbs at the end here. And let me just show you that Jesus shows you and I love that goes beyond mere external beauty. And this is really the solution to find true beauty. Because in Isaiah 53, it says about the Messiah, about Jesus, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now, there's a couple of Hebrew words used here, beauty and appearance, which can also be translated shapeliness. And what's interesting is these are the same two words in the same order that are used to describe Rachel earlier in the Bible. Now, Rachel is one of the most beautiful women in the Bible. And it says she has beauty and shapeliness, attractiveness. She was so stunningly beautiful. Do you remember her story? Jacob was her husband. Now, Jacob was a typical guy. He had kind of a messed up life. And his boss had two daughters. One of them was gorgeous. That was Rachel. Again, same two words, beautiful and attractive. And then Jacob says, he looks at Rachel and says, if I could only have her as my wife, then I'd be complete. Then I'd feel good about myself. Now, Leah was the other sister. She was the sister that nobody wanted. Her dad didn't want her. He tricks Jacob into marrying her first. Jacob didn't want her. He ends up marrying Rachel, 
and then basically ignoring Leah for the whole rest of her life, their marriage. But get this, God chose her, Leah, not Rachel. Leah, the girl nobody wanted, the homely girl, the cross-eyed girl, the overweight girl, to be the one through which the Messiah's lineage would come because Leah ends up being the great, 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 et cetera, grandma of Jesus. And Isaiah is saying in this verse, when the Messiah comes into the world, he also comes deliberately, not as Rachel, but as Leah. You know, he shows up like the unbeauty queen like the one who didn't even get invited to the prom, the girl or the boy that nobody wanted. Why would Jesus Christ come to earth deliberately, unsightly, to show us real beauty, deep beauty on the inside? And the only lasting way that you and I are going to get shaken out of the sexual illusions that mess up our lives is this knowing that in heaven Jesus had all the beauty, all the glory, but he emptied himself of all of that when he came to die on the cross for our sins. He gave it all up to love you, not because you are beautiful, but to make you beautiful through and through, beautifying you with his love. And that's the solution to this whole mess, to know how deeply I am loved. See, God made us not just as his subjects, but to be his lovers. And it's the degree to which you realize, wow, I am loved. To that degree, you are freed from the hold that an obsession with external beauty might have on you. So love Jesus and be free. Let's pray. With our heads bowed, you know, I'm sure this stirs up a lot. And if today you're feeling any shame, that certainly was, my, was not my intent. But if you're feeling shame because of past actions, be, be drawn to Jesus like the woman at the well. And know that he loves you and he gives you a fresh start. And he can make you so clean that you feel white as snow inside. He loves you that much. Heavenly Father, we want to be wise, not stupid about sex and love. So make us wise by looking at your Son, Jesus Christ, who, though he was beautiful, gave up his beauty that we might become beautiful in your sight and receive the only beauty that will last forever. And we also ask that you would change the way that we deal with each other. Make Twin Lakes Church a community of people who look to the heart and not on the outward appearance. Make us a community of people that teaches biblical standards when it comes to sex and marriage, but also has a, an arms-wide-open welcome to those who feel like they might not meet those standards. Help us to be a place where we realize that we're all sinners in need of a Savior and a place where we're so grateful that we have a Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen.